This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening. Hello, hi. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. We're going to present for you an hour of film criticism, which is something we like to do this time every Monday night. My name is Thomas Caldwell, and I'm joined... We've got a full cave once again tonight. I'm joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra, Helen, Nicholas and Josh Nelson. Good evening, all. Good. Good evening. We're going to have to rehearse our greetings one day. We're going to nail it. It's going to be this seamless kind of blending into the show greeting. I killed it that time. We're going to be finishing up soon, actually. I think this is our second last review show, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And we're also coming up to a bit of a milestone. I think our 200th episode is not too far away. So there you go. It might be this one. I should have checked before I went down this train of thought. On tonight's show... We're going to take a look at Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, a sort of companion piece to his very high-profile 2012 documentary, The Act of Killing. Once again, Oppenheimer is examining the perpetrators of the Indonesian killings of 1965 and 66, but this time from a slightly more personal perspective. And then to Creed, the new film by Ryan Coogler, the writer-director of Fruitvale Station. Creed is sort of a spin-off, sort of a sequel to the Rocky film series, with the focus now on Apollo Creed's son, who is an up-and-coming boxer who seeks out the help of an ageing Rocky Balboa. Then at the end of the show... Deathgasm, a heavy metal-inspired <laughs> schlock horror from New Zealand. And we're also going to take a look at Turbo Kid, a Canadian-New Zealand co-production that sort of combines, let's say, BMX Bandits with Mad Max. Both are horror comedies with a strong retro appeal. Both are from New Zealand. What's wrong with those people? We watched them both. We're going to talk about them both. That should be... I am myself a New Zealand-England co-production, and I'm actually quite nice. I, I do forget know. about that. Sorry, sorry. I, I apologise. Slander my, my people. My gross defamation against... The, the twin island country of New Zealand. But look, Cerise, we're going to start off a bit more serious then oh, than what I've done so my, far. My, my segue called well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, I'm all, all guns blazing tonight. Now, let's take a look at uh, the, the look of silence. I think, did we all see the act of killing? Yes. Yeah, yeah all mm. right. Well, the look of silence. I think we, we know what we're in for here, but let's uh, let's discuss this, this rather extraordinary documentary. Yeah, companion piece, as you said, Thomas, to uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's 2012 documentary Fantasia, The Act of Killing, exploring the atrocities in Indonesia in the mid-1960s when a million so-called communists were massacred brutally, some of them seemingly by cinephiles of all people. These are some of the people we met in The Act of Killing, some cinema gangsters they even coined themselves as. I felt cinema was even being indicted in that film somehow. It made me feel incredibly uneasy uh, for so many reasons. A profoundly powerful, distressing film. Uh, this follow-up of sorts, it's not really right to call it a sequel. Some of it was shot uh, before The Act of Killing. Some of it uh, after it's been released afterwards. It focuses less on the perpetrators and less on getting them to reenact their gruesome crimes, uh, which they did in The Act of Killing across many different genres, extremely upsettingly. Uh, here we are more asked to side with victims, and one in particular, a hop- an ophthalmologist, 
Uh, metaphors are a bit blunt in this film, but here's a guy who helps people see better. Uh, and if you really want to hammer home the metaphors here, he is the son of a, a, a very elderly man who is more or less deaf and blind and cannot look after himself and has as bigger dose of cultural amnesia as you could possibly get. Why this, this family is so important is that the brother of uh, the, the key uh, character, for want of a better word, and this the interrogator, the ophthalmologist, he was murdered before uh, Al Thomas's friend's birth, in fact, but it's clearly haunted him uh, ever since. And so he approaches various people uh, that he has viewed uh, previously on um, footage that we're actually watching, mutely watching this horrific footage of people boasting about massacring his brother amongst others uh, and, and the brutal particulars of uh, this murder. Um, and he approaches people, helps them with their eyesight in the hope that perhaps he can also jog their memories and get them to think about what they and people close to them have done and not so much got away with as everyone knows they've done it. And this is the, the, the great problem at the heart of these films is this whole idea of uh, the baddies got away with it. They were propped up by the government. Uh, it wasn't like the atrocities of Nazi Germany where they kind of got uh, stitched up afterwards. Um, the baddies in Indonesia are still largely in power and... Um, this is one of those films where, you, where there's that common argument about the Holocaust, we must never forget, and then we'll, we'll bring out films time to time to make sure none of us forget, and, uh, and therefore we don't. With the Indonesian thing, most of us here in the West knew nothing of these atrocities in the first place, and it seems the more you remind people of them, uh, the less you can get anyone to actually even admit they did anything wrong. It's completely perplexing from a viewer uh, from my viewer perspective, from a, a comfy, cosy, sort of middle-class Western perspective, and infuriating and exasperating in impossible measure. Uh, I think there are aspects of this film, which I'm going to throw to you in a moment, that are a little exploitative and, and troubling, not least this, this business of constantly throwing to uh, the, the lead's father, who just writhes about quite helplessly and upsettingly. I mean, we get the point. We get what he stands for. Um, but it's incredibly powerful stuff, and and just watching this this humble gentleman, who I think must be in his late forties, but looks a lot younger. I think he says at one point he's forty four, yeah. but he looks like he could be in his late twenties. Yeah, yeah, he's really <laughs> youthful looking, um, but uh, he just holds this cold, quiet gaze as these people sort of often grin at him as as they explain what they've done and whether they feel they ought in any way uh, be apologetic for it. And this includes people and current day positions of power who uh, even oh, they're pretty thinly veiled threats they throw at him but uh yeah i mean this is incredibly queasy troubling viewing well his own uncle is one of these people who is indirectly responsible for his brother's death well there's that yeah. too and then we also see the next generation down uh, being indoctrinated in the school so his yeah. son is uh, being spoon-fed nonsense in the classroom um Ooh. <laughs> I think he's a good interviewer, this guy. I mean, he has so much pain and, and anger, which you almost don't see unless you pay very close attention to his face. There's a lot of still static shots of his face just listening to these men speak or watching the footage, and you have to really look to see that pain and, and, and anger in his eyes. It's there, it's simmering. But he has this beautiful 
calmness in the way he very gently interrogates them. I think he's really remarkable the way he talks to these people and allows them to flounder. I mean, The Look of Silence is a really good title for this film because there's a lot of moments of absolute silence where these people talking to him and not, not, not a single one of them apologises or admits wrongdoing, but that, that they trip themselves up often, that they, they get very uncomfortable with what they're saying to him. And I think so much is communicated in these unspoken moments where you get the sense that these people are very uncomfortable and probably repressing an enormous amount of, of guilt themselves of for what, what happened, but desperately trying to perpetrate this myth which has become you know part of the school curriculum as we see that what they did was the right thing to do and i love those moments where he did he does gently challenge them like there's one point where one tries to claim it was a relig- they were religiously motivated and he just very calmly says that's not true you know that's not true religion had nothing to do with this or or um you know when they started to say that the the communist generals were, were guilty of the worst atrocities and again he just very calmly says no, you know that's not true, that didn't happen at all, that was your side who did that. I think those are really powerful moments. I think there is so much unspoken gold in this film. The Indonesian title, I believe, of this film is Just Silence. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the original word is, and I think the Indonesian title for Act of Killing was Butcher, translated as Butcher, which is, I I think, those um, alternate titles give a really interesting insight into precisely what makes this sort of duo of films tick. I am... there's so much going on in in both of these films, but in particular uh, in in Look of Silence, one of the things that I found really remarkable watching it, and Cerise, I guess this kind of locks into that idea of exploitation, which I think is such a crucial word in a sense. Um, it's very difficult, I, I think, on an obvious level to think about uh, Look of Silence and not talk about it and not think about it as this kind of sister film or kind of... Uh, what was your word? A, a companion, a companion film. Of, yeah, yeah. To, to look of silence, but another film that this um, this movie is in very, very, very direct dialogue with is a 1988 documentary called "The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On" by Kazuo Hara. Um, the executive producers, I think, co-producers of Look of Silence uh, include uh, Von Herzog, of course, and uh, Errol Morris, mm. the great. I mean, these are like the Monsters of Rock tour of documentary <laughs> filmmaking here. Now, Errol Morris is on the record for one of his all-time favourite documentaries being The Emperor's Naked March. Na- Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. Now, this documentary's Japanese documentary tracks an ex-Japanese soldier called Kenzo uh, Okuzaki, a veteran of Japan's campaign in New Guinea during the Second World War. And he's basically tracking down what happened to two soldiers in his unit who were killed. It's kind of the same deal. He's interviewing people retrospectively about what happened and he gets lots of different versions and he's trying to kind of bring the truth together. Um, what he finds is that some people say that they were deserted, some people that say that they were, uh, they were executed, that cannibalism was involved or desertion. But Kenzo deals with it in a very, very different way to the main the main guy in The Look of Silence. And I think that that's where this issue of exploitation really comes to the, to the fore. I do really think that Look of Silence is really engaging, not just with Indonesian history, but also documentary film history. And I think it's very, very, very deeply engaged with how uh, Kazuo Ahara dealt with this very kind of... Sim- not similar in terms of content, but similar in terms of its sort of structural setup, um, because that film is is literally a young man just screaming and physically attacking old people that he holds guilty. It's a, again a very distressing film in a very different way. Um, but they were they would be another sister set, I guess, of films I would really recommend watching together to try to unpack. Yeah, well, what's the, going on uh, here? The interlocutor here is a, is a, um, a paragon of uh, restraint, even though you, you do sense he's 
fit to bursting to mm. especially when his uncle uh mm. produces a, a horrifying admission and then more or less pleads the nuremberg defense which is just following orders and doing the job and and even his family um yeah it's it is all of the content of what we what we are increasingly beginning to understand about what went on in indonesia in the 60s and how it is is a lot of the legacy is is not exactly um uh solved and and made better uh subsequently Uh, that's one thing but this um i i still actually do find troubling this this little sense of um unease at at the especially that just the old man being put on display like that because of course he can't even see this documentary and view it back he's quite powerless it feels like he's um being victimized again he, he doesn't even remember th- his son who's gone i mean you know, i think it's just really ramming home a point that's I, abundantly clear as it is i i felt with those scenes that there's a, there was one scene in particular that i i really felt uncomfortable about and did question why did we need to see that where his father is shown to be completely helpless he doesn't know where he is either yeah and, 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 and again you're wondering why isn't anybody helping him you're just shooting this seems cruel but but otherwise i actually i liked all the inclusion of his family i like the stuff with his children i like the shot i like the scenes where he and his daughter just laugh at a fart joke <laughs> you know i like him to, to talking to his son about what he's learned at school. I like him talking to his mother because I think this helps to humanise and create a portrait of, of this family who are who life has still gone on for them and they're still trying to find happiness and, and meaning. And I think it's an important juxtaposition to the incredible horror he's getting from the people he's he's interviewing. Yeah, that works for me, those conversations. Uh, there's one other scene that's a bit... It's a little interesting where Joshua Oppenheimer himself is heard and is clearly trying to direct some of the scene. You get this real sense that he's mm. trying to... In fact, a lot of the... the the interviews, there is a staginess to the camera work. You do get some nice um, you know, A-B sort of one-two shots, of, um, which it, it does seem a little contrived, but, um, you know, we know what effect he's aiming for, and it is one of outrage. I'm outraged mm. watching this, this film. And um, I think with the Herzog and the Morris uh, involvement that that would not be accidental, that, that that would be that kind of artifice would be consciously revealed and con- like I mean, it's certainly from act of killing as well like re- revealing the lines between fiction and and non-fiction and kind of playing with these lines i think is that's yeah. where it gets tricky but it's also where it gets super interesting and I, I think that sense of artifice is really important and something they were playing with in the act yeah. of killing and yep. this touches on something you said at the very start uh cerise about um how we almost can't comprehend this and we, we it's almost we've got cultural amnesia and i think that's part of what this film is exploring that th- what happened is so horrific it's so removed from any frame of reference that we have that yeah. it's difficult to believe and and this guy even early in the film says I, I think he's exaggerating i think he's saying that he did all these things as some kind of act of bravado to cover up for his guilt i can't believe this is all true and yet later in the film other characters reference some of the stuff he spoke about and you just get that really uneasy and very disturbing sensation of oh my god this stuff they're talking about is actually what happens yeah and the more that any evidence is produced uh just the more upsetting it is mm. uh the more uh, almost impossible to reconcile this with any sort of uh reality that we're familiar with it's just uh that, that people who seem uh hospitable could be capable of such brutality it's a banality it's, of evil yeah. thing isn't it well, i think this is i think this is a really profound film are they beyond i mean they're beyond yeah. belief i yeah. mean they they just sort of stagger the mind that the titles like you say i mean the titles are just so everything 
that is important, I think, is contained in these titles. You know, the the look of silence as a culpability for the audience. Like, why didn't I not? Why do I not know about this? The act of killing, this idea of performance, and just those words, these really simple words, are just so effective, and they really capture what's going on. I think in these films. The Look of Silence, certainly a very confronting documentary. It's, it's screening exclusively at Cinema Nova, and the act of killing, if you want to catch up with that, is available quite widely on home entertainment. Three Triple R. The film we're about to discuss. Creed. Josh, I believe you have a vague interest in the boxing genre. <laughs> yes, I may have mentioned that once or twice or every time we've covered a boxing film on uh, Plato's Cave, including very briefly earlier this year when we looked at Southpaw. My interest in the boxing genre film is masculinity, violence, class, race and father-son relations. The kind of key words of Creed, I mean Creed is really about beautiful bodies, broken men and boxing life lessons. When I first heard that they were making Rocky Seven, I do admit to being a little sceptical, particularly when I heard the synopsis and that it was about the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed. For those of you who aren't aware of the Rocky franchise, Apollo Creed was the character played by Carl Weathers through the first four Rocky films. He began as Rocky's rival, and by Rocky Four, he was his... Well, actually, by the Rocky montage in Rocky Three, you could tell when they're running along the beach in there. Their Adonis Johnsons are swinging in their shorts that they were the best of friends. And this is really about his son wanting uh, a change of life uh, <laughs> and tracking down Rocky Balboa for a shot at, at boxing glory. And it sounded a little like a, a cheap idea for uh, a sequel or, or a spin-off. But this film is in safe hands. The director here, Ryan Coogler, who's also the co-writer, directed Fruitvale Station a few years ago, which I only caught up with at the beginning of this year, which is not only a really sound debut feature it's it's a work with a um some very interesting racial themes and also a really strong dramatic core and i think that's what kugler brings to creed and it's a film that i found dramatically potent it's one of the most dramatically moving films of the year this film really broke me throughout and i wasn't expecting it It really caught me off guard for a lot of it look i think one of the strengths of creed is the way in which it manages to balance the the obvious tropes of the boxing genre film the montage the training the, the sense of the the underdog with some extraordinarily well filmed fight footage there was one fight that occurs about halfway through the film which is one of the most extraordinary filmed boxing sequences predominantly in long takes this fluid camera it stays within within the the bounds of the ring I, I can't think of another film recently that's done something similar in this in this genre but it matches that with um, a grounding in character and it goes back in a sense to what the first two rocky films particularly the first one was about and also rocky balboa and that is a character exploration of of broken men and and i guess this idea of father-son relationships I guess the other thing that I find interesting here is that it's called Creed. It's not called Rocky Seven, And I think this film is, by and large, about ideas of, of legacy, particularly father-son legacy, but also this idea of the patriarchal name because the, the illegitimate son, whose name's Adonis Johnson, um, he doesn't want to adopt the Creed moniker because he wants to carve out his, his own legacy. And a lot of the film rests on this idea of will he become Creed? Is this something he's predestined? Has he earned it? Is he actually the illegitimate son? And I, I think it's fascinating in that context because it, it comes back to issues of, of capitalism. When we looked at this idea of how capitalism frames father-son relationships last week in relation to, to 99 homes. And I think there's a bit more of complexity. I think there could be a temptation to look at this film as if it's a, a simplistic reaffirmation of the 
importance of the the patriarchal surname and i don't think it's that simple i think there's actually a bit of complexity with the way in which this film tries to deal with the the, the ambivalence within this film and not just in terms of that but in other areas as well particularly in in the romantic subplot again it's not straightforward this is not just the woman is a cardboard cutout and is is sort of background dressing there's some very interesting stuff uh, in this film that, that tries to, I think, acknowledge the, the tropes and the stereotypes of the boxing film but expand upon it or, or carve out something different or, or new, even if it's not a subversive or, or radical film. There's a great line in this where the love interest, um, Bianca, who's a woman who has progressive hearing loss, which I think is also I- interesting in, in terms of bodies, says, I'm not going to be your motivation. Like, you can't carve me out in the, in the same role that all the other women in the previous films have sort of been reduced to. And lastly, before I segue, and I do have other things to talk about, but I I have to mention Stallone. I think he's extraordinary here. I think he's had a bad rap for a number of years. He's been written off predominantly because he's been reduced to playing B action roles, which really have, I think, been beneath him. And if anyone has seen First Blood, uh, the final scene in First Blood is one of the most extraordinarily well-acted sequences where he breaks down. And there are moments in this where we see him emote and it shreds me. And I mean, a lot of that is the direction and the writing, but it's his performance as well. His ability to sell this idea of a broken man in a way that Mickey Rourke does similarly in The, the Wrestler. This feels like a film that, we, that this is the one he's been building up to, that he's been destined to play. And I think he, he really is extraordinary and deserves all the credit that, and accolades that he probably will get for this film. We're nervously looking around at who's going to speak next. I um, I didn't respond to it quite as enthusiastically as you did, um, and it hasn't stayed with me upon reflection. I've got to admit, I found this a little bit of a, a painting-by-numbers drama-slash-sport film, and I wonder if that is because I've seen the first Rocky film many, many years ago, and I read a description of them online, so I haven't done that journey. I'm actually not up to speed really with the mythology. I'm not emotionally invested, although I really appreciated a lot of the shout-outs in the film because I, I did do my research and so I recognised those and, and enjoyed that. So I didn't quite... And I feel like I've missed out because this film has had a huge groundswell of critical s- support and the cynical part of me wonders, are we so starved for adult drama in cinema that we've gone overboard with, with a film that is that is quite good as opposed to being to being brilliant. But look, I, I didn't get swept away by this film, but there are aspects of it that I thought were absolutely first rate. And I'm with you. I think Stallone does a performance here that is absolutely spectacular. I mean, you know, he really is a, a really amazing presence and you really feel every every moment. And I'm also have always been, despite not having seen the Rocky films, I've always considered myself team, team Stallone. I think he gets a bad rap. I really like him a lot. And I think Michael B. Jordan does a fantastic job as well. And those boxing sequences are sublime. I mean, look, I'm going to backtrack and say all the good elements of this, all the elements of the film that I liked actually overshadow the stuff that I didn't latch on to. So I mostly did enjoy this. Those boxing sequences are so fantastic. And that middle sequence you mentioned, Josh, the detail I picked up on is as the boxers physically came closer to each other in the ring and then got apart, the camera did that for the audience. So when they were apart from each other, the camera would pull right back. And then when they were in close, the camera would go right in. It is really intense, uh, you know, visceral filmmaking. I mean, in, bravo. This is a, a beautifully made made film. Um, the issue I was really curious about, and I'm throwing this out as a question as opposed to a statement, is what is the appeal of this film as opposed to, say, the original franchise? Because in the original Rocky film, from memory, it's very much a fantasy for that work, that ethnic minority working class rising above their ranks and becoming great. 
in this film, you've got the young hero, um, you know, sort of very common hero, as in Creed Jr., has this legacy of having a very famous father, but he's had it rough. He's done time in juvenile detention and orphanages, and then he gets adopted and comes from a life of incredible privilege. So he actually abandons a really good white-collar job. Um, you know, he lives in a beautiful home to then become to go and take it real. And I was wondering if this is tapping into a sort of more contemporary fantasy, which is the fantasy of someone coming from privilege still being able to demonstrate that they're keeping it real, which seems to be a very big part of, of I think, youth culture today, where a lot of us are from privileged backgrounds, but we want to be taken more seriously <laughs> as being a bit street. Um, that's the weird spectre of this film that's hanging over, over me. Um, I feel, just to respond to that, mm. for me it's a case of diversity. I think that this film is really intersectional, actually, just in, not just in terms of um, race and class, but also gender, and that we have women from different places and different classes and different races, and that people... So race doesn't represent class. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, that, that people can... You can, be, you can be black and you can be rich and you can be black and you can be poor. Yep. And we don't actually see a whole... Not even just in cinema, but just in culture, we don't tend to have a lot of these intersectional breakdowns of diversity we actually just kind of have people representing one thing and I, that was actually one of the things not just that appealed to me about this film but I, again with I, I'm, I'm not into sports films like your perfect description of sports films if somebody said let's go see a sports film I would make up every excuse in the book there's something about boxing films I am the least athletic person I think I know <laughs> and I don't know what it is and Josh I think you touched on a lot of those those things that come to the fore in boxing films specifically um, and, you know, at their best. And I think, I think some of the Rocky films really are boxing films at their best. It, there's just this perfect blend of action and pathos. These are films that, again, they really explicitly acknowledge different kinds of masculinity that are not just performative. They're literally played out in a ring. Um, but they're also quite vulnerable and broken. They're about broken masculinity and this really delicate frailty. It's just quite amazing when that's linked to this display of physical strength. And it's just such a strange... And, of course, things like race and, and class, they all come together as well. I, I'm very much team Rocky. Um, I will admit it's it's an uneven franchise. Although shout out to the uh, training montage in Rocky Four in particular with Dolph Lundgren. Oh I yeah, think. it's not the best <laughs> of the franchise, but that's probably my favourite training montage in any sport film ever. But just had to give that a little mention. But look, even going back to like film noirs, I think some of the best film noir were boxing boxing films, things like The Setup with Robert Ryan, Bogart's The Harder They, they Fall, fall yeah. and Scorsese's Raging Bull. There's something about boxing films, and and just. Maybe, I mean, it could just be that for me, I was watching this and I, I did come in like you a little bit sceptical, but then I realised about halfway through that the Rocky films for me are what the Bond films and Star Wars films are for a lot of other people at the moment. I have a kind of emotional investment hmm. in these and, and this film just got me in the first 60 seconds. I just felt like I'd just fallen into something that I just didn't want to step out of. I was just immersed in under a minute in this film. The opening sequence just devastated me and that just didn't stop. I was I was like a child just wailing and sobbing in this movie, like literally clutching my chest because of my heart by the end of this film... I, I, you know, just Team Rocky. I mean, that's not a that's not a critical response. That's a that's an emotional response. They even threw in like Mario Bava aesthetics on the end climactic fight, and it's like, oh, you guys, you've made this film for me. <laughs> I didn't have that sort of emotional response to it, but I enjoyed the film, and I was most taken by Stallone's comic timing. He actually, he's good. Yeah, uh, very underrated. Not just some good lines, but some terrific delivery, and even a wonderful sort of triple double take. That was uh, very amusing and very wry 
and uh, well, I, I don't have that sort of investment in these these films. And I haven't seen a Rocky film in the longest time. Um, and there was a long time between them, wasn't there? Up until what Rocky Balboa and a few years ago. When did that yeah. very first one was what seventy something? No, it was, it was forty years exactly. Oh, this one okay. was released, so that was the big anniversary. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, definitely that... Uh, his name's Ryan Coogler, isn't it, the director? He, yep. he has the script credit too, which I think is a very critical yeah. thing it's to a note. masterful script. It is. It is a really terrific... And, and it feels street. That's such an, a key term in this film, this idea of uh, authenticity, um, whether uh, Adonis uh, really can lay claim not just to his father's legacy, even if he, if he wishes to, but really whether he's earned the right to, to do it, not just because the, through the issue of whether he's skilled enough or fighter but whether he having had a life uh, having been rescued from a, a pretty grim life of probably interminable juvenile detention leading into adult prison life he actually yeah is bailed out and given uh, thrown into the lap of luxury and then ends up as a what a financial advisor or something and and then uh, just as he gets a promotion moves on and you think okay he's, you know, he's I, I still didn't quite grasp his motivation at that point but He's happy to go with it, not least because once we actually started seeing some boxing footage, it was scintillatingly well shot. Even his uh, match early on and some dive in uh, Tijuana, I think, across the border, naturally. And then back to his uh, day job uh, as a financial advisor. It was a nice contrast. Uh, I, I think it is a very well-scripted film, and uh, but uh, if it hadn't been for those... Uh, boxing sequences, I, the film would have actually lost me, I think, because they, they really brought me in. They were visceral. Mm. They were so adroit. Uh, really felt like there was a third boxer in the ring, ducking, weaving. Um, just oh, ex- really extraordinary. Um, not as bloodthirsty as I might have expected this to be, but then again, I watched the new Shinya Tsukamoto film at the Japanese Film Festival just hours earlier, <laughs> fires on the plane. <laughs> and as a World War II film set in the Philippines uh, with Tsukamoto putting himself through one of his usual sort of um, brutal body horror, uh, escalated, um, ghastly, monstrosity-type um, epics. Uh, yeah, Rocky actually seemed quite subdued. Uh, Creed seemed quite subdued. But look, I, I'm still... Very impressed, and I don't doubt for a moment that a sequel is in the works. I mean, Dolph Lundgren doubtless. has said he's up for it. I'm just putting that out there. That my dream comeback of this training montage from Rocky IV, it may still happen. Maybe Ivan Drago has an illegitimate <gasps> son that Rocky will then have Maybe to. Maybe a daughter. Uh, there to, was a girl. A there was a girl. Good. Did you see the girl boxing? There was a scene just in the background. There are a couple of le- lady boxers. Well, look, I think coming back to um, the, the point you raised about the the, cl- the class issue, I think this film is in some ways about identity politics, and, I, and that's what I found interesting because too often, or not necessarily too often, but often in boxing films, there's just a simple distinction between race and class. Like the, it'll be the the black guy's the wealthy one, and it'll be the white the underdog, like it was in Rocky One, or they'll just sort of switch that. And you're giving you're giving archetypal characters that are uh, quite easy to understand. And I think the fact that that the Adonis character here has a kind of a rough upbringing, but then he's had a wealthy background, then he's kind of made it in the middle class, but he doesn't really seem to feel he belongs there. And I guess this idea of origins and legacy, I think there's a complexity in the script, even if it you know is not. Uh, ultimately subversive and doesn't really challenge some of these myths of the the working class hero. I think it explores them in greater depth than we've often seen. And I think in terms of the bodies, and that's where the the Bianca character is fascinating because she has a, a, a broken body as well. I mean, this idea of the, the woman having this uh, hearing affliction and then questioning the male on, on, hang on, I can't do anything about this. This is something I've got to live with. You're 
willingly putting your body at, at risk. And I thought there was something interesting in that conversation and that way they tried to explore it. My one criticism, really, and I may as well mention this, and it's something I had similar criticism to the Rocky Balboa, is the final fight sequence. And I think because it peaks so well with that middle fight that the, from a choreography point of view and from a cinematography and also particularly from a makeup point of view, it, it just didn't quite come off. And it, it, look, it left a bit of a tarnish on what had up until that point been right, quite remarkable experience, which I know is, you know, it's that Hollywood fight scene where despite the fact that the training montages are all about footwork, people stand toe-to-toe and hit each other in the head (laughs) rapidly, even in the 12th round. Uh, You've got to expect that. I'm willing to admit it, but it was a little frustrating. We still haven't seen the perfect final fight in a Rocky film yet. Were you won over, though, by the very, very final sequence? That was a sweet end. It's, yeah. a, it's a pretty... Even I actually got a bit teared up by the, the throwback that you get in the final sequence. I it was, was beautiful. sobbing. Oh, it's just yeah. a mess by that point. It, this, this has been an amazing success, this film. Like, it's really captured people's imaginations. I, I, can't, I don't think even one year ago we would have said that a Rocky spin-off film would have had this effect. So it's kind of... It's, it's become a bit zeitgeisty. I recommend people definitely go and check it out. Three. Triple. You're listening to Plato's Cave. We've got 15 minutes left to look at some weirdness from New Zealand other than Cerise. <laughs> well, I've got two films to get through here, introduction-wise. But um, thankfully I have the... Later, Caldwell. <laughs> thankfully I have the spirit of filth to propel us forward away from these racial slurs. <laughs> um, the thing that, of course, ties these together is you've not... I've, as you've pointed out, Thomas, he's Ant Timpson and Timpson Films. Um, and Deathgasm and Turbo Kid were pretty much all the rage now on the International Film Festival circuit. They both, of course, played at MIFF this year to general widespread acclaim. So Deathgasm is a heavy metal comedy splatter film, the debut directorial feature for New Zealand video effects artist Jason Lee Howden. The film follows spotty teen metalhead Brody, uh, played by Milo Cawthon, who is, I believe, from the Power Rangers RPM series. I've, I found that out. I'm, I'm not a regular viewer of the Power Rangers RPM series just want to put that out there anyway Brody finds himself forced to live with his hardcore christian aunt and uncle when his mum is institutionalized and like many disenfranchised kids before and after him Brody decides to express his frustrations with his lot in life through heavy metal music and starts a band the deathgasm of the film's title with his buddies zach dion and giles and in the spirit of the best and the most absurd 80s straight to video horror Deathgasm stumble across haunted sheet music uh, that allows them to summon a demon and quite literally all hell breaks loose as the protagonists band together to conquer it as you do. Turbo Kid is co-directed by Francois Simard, Anouk Whistle and Johan Carl Whistle. Uh, it's a Canadian-New Zealand co-production that brings a kind of action-packed, splattery, poke, post-apocalyptic comedy stuff all together in one movie. It's very much drenched. The glue is very much a kind of 80s retro pop culture aesthetic. The key word is really 80s here. I can't emphasise that enough. It's some pretty intense nostalgia porn, much more, I think, than Deathgasm. Um, one reviewer also used the BMX Bandits comparison that you mentioned, Thomas, and they compared it. They said it was a cross between BMX Bandits and Gem and the Holograms, which I think is kind of perfect. Yeah, that's much better um, than my but one. But Mad Max yep. is up there. I think that it's all of those kind of mushed together. You guys are getting an idea. So the eponymous kid is played by Monroe Chambers, who's best known for his role in the Degrassi reboot, which I did watch. Um, 
and he finds himself in the dystopian future of 1997 up against evil one-eyed bad guy Zeus played by cult icon Michael Ironside and an evil henchman with the satisfying name of Skeletron. <laughs> Throw in BMX stunts, a magic glove, a cutesy neon-drenched android called Apple and the inescapably catchy synth-pop soundtrack and you pretty much get with Turbo Kid what it says on the packet. Are these films fun? Yes. Are people broadly adored them? Absolutely. Do I have a preference? I tend towards deathgasm, but probably more for matters of taste rather than anything else. I think that they're both kind of fun, retro silliness, but there's something about deathgasm. The the satanic panic era hypocrisy is very much of interest to me. Um, It's just pitch perfect splatter. And I, I really have to be the one to mention this, that Deathgasm just trumped Turbo Kid for me simply because it had a dildo massacre. <laughs> and I'm going to finish That's that and throw it to you guys name, on though. dildo massacre. <laughs> I, I think what I really like, I enjoyed both these films, but I think what gives Deathgasm, say, the edge is it's probably less knowing and winking and trying to evoke a, a sort of a previous era. Deathgasm feels like a more pure film in a way. There's a real spirit. If you're a heavy metal fan, I imagine you're going to go berserk because it incorporates so much heavy metal iconography and mythology. I saw this at a festival screening where I was lucky enough to do the Q&A with, with the director and that was a really pumped psyched crowd and I found again I had the advantage I saw this in the cinema where I only watched Turbo Kid on on, on a screener but um, that cinema was applauding during sequences in in the film in delight and I I was there with them I mean the the, the decapitation gone wrong sequence I think I cheered Um, and and the bit where he kills off his oh sorry spoiler no I I haven't told you he kills off that there is one death in particular that's really quite wicked and evil that I had a really big (laughs) big laugh at but um, yeah I I really enjoyed Deathgasm I think it very much had the, the spirit of early uh, Peter Jackson films in it, um, but look, I also really did appreciate Turbo Kid as well. I think I they're like a great that, double. That would make yeah. the most magnificent yep. double. And I think we've sort of done the Grindhouse seventies thing. That's kind of I feel like it's running out of steam now. And now we're starting to get more of this kind of eighties retro aesthetic. I mean, a few years ago, Hobo with a Shotgun came out, which I did not like. I actually thought it was too true to a genre in that it was just a bit shit. But I think I think Turbo. <laughs> I, th- that film really rubbed me the wrong way for That's some such reason. such a great review. Yeah. <laughs> it was too shit for its own good. I think Turbo Kid better encapula- encapsulates the spirit of these kind of ridiculous 80s films. Um, but, yeah, a lot more entertaining. Um, just like, yeah, I think it's really curious that both these films have come out of New Zealand and both sort of work with this kind of horror <laughs> comedy. <laughs> New Zealand also capable of doing very serious, wonderful, profound films. No, look, I came of cinephile age watching Peter Jackson's first films yeah. and adoring them, and uh, they were very much handcrafted labours of love. Bad Taste famously took four years of Sundays to make, and... Um, well, there's a fabulous documentary called Good Taste Made Bad Taste, which is it just goes into all the, the gory detail. But the, the gore and bloodletting in those films is as nothing to what goes on. It's just so matter-of-factly and deadpanly and, and turbo-cared. I, I can't remember Deathgasm quite so well. I watched it months ago during Myth. But Turbo Kid is with me. I watched it only a couple of days ago. It's a, it is a product of the digital era every bit as much it is nostalgic for the 80s. I mean, the, the splatter effects in it are not the stuff that Jackson was doing in Brain Dead or Meet the Feebles or Bad Taste way back when because they are digital produced by and large. We see things that just could not really possibly be produced uh, with latex and foam and rubber and whatever that horrible syrupy stuff is that makes the fake blood that poured in so many gallons in, in Brain Dead, which I still adore. I do adore those early Jackson films. 
I really don't know quite what it is that's in the water in New Zealand lately, but it keeps producing splatstick films. Um, at the higher end of the, the spectrum, we've got what we do in the shadows. Um, housebound. Uh, housebound. But then just a year or two ago, this berserk Maori cannibal film called Fresh Meat. That's and amazing. It is. Well, it's just so out there. and But it goes into real New Zealand territory and taboos and uh, certain cultural things very specific to New Zealand. And yet these films seem to travel well. I guess Turbo Kid's not so specific geographically. Uh, Deathgasm, I remember being a bit more Kiwi-ish, but I don't remember quite why. Oh, it's very Kiwi. Well, I, think it's one of the, I think it's one of the reasons I like Deathgasm a lot more too, because it's very I, I do remember Kiwi. there being accents, but I'm trying to remember mm. if there are any specific cultural references, but I just, you know, that film went in one ear and out the other, which is kind of appropriate. Lots of other things did in the course of that film to various bodies in there. Uh, <laughs> there are lots of things going in and out of ears and other orifices yes. in, in Deathgasm. Uh, it's penis-obsessed. There's the number of fa- phalli or phalluses. <laughs> What's the appropriate plural for? Felidia. Felidia. Um, you know, and there's a wonderful energy to Deathgasm that I found really appealing. And it did evoke bad taste in quite overt ways, but even another film or franchise in more overt ways is Evil Dead. I mean, yeah. the possessions, the camera work, the style. You know, it, it, yes, it apes Raimi to a degree, but with a kind of loving ode and, and quite an obvious ode, I think. And I, and I, I appreciate the way it evoked the spirit of those um, the Evil Dead films and the, and the Bruce Campbell films. Um, for, for me, I think I appreciate it more than Turbo Kid. Turbo Kid felt less energetic than it should, less enjoyable than it should. Stylistically, the the visuals, the sound, all kind of ticked the right boxes, and yet it didn't quite hang together, particularly on the heels of Kung Fury, which I think captured the spirit and had an energy to it. The other strange thing about Turbo Kid is it's a kid's film, or it's it's about kids, and it I was expecting, and I think it's it, the setup is far more in line with the kind of 80s post-apocalyptic sci-fi kids serialised TV show, and it becomes far more kind of midnight movie gore fest. Now, it seems caught between these two extremes. Um, from a, a reference point of view, this may be quite obscure, but there's a Bruce Campbell film that was made in 1992, Mind Warp, which sort of deviates through sci-fi horror territory. And there's, there was a lot of similarities or it evoked that um, for me. But I think the, the issue I had with uh, Turbo Kid is, is script. To me, it meanders when it should run at the start. It doesn't have a real sort of momentum that I think Deathgasm does. And I think if, if that had a stronger sense of the kind of the the mission-driven narrative of the kid, this idea who's, you know, a kid who I di- is, his idol is Turbo Man and, you know, he's he sort of just stumbles upon the Turbo Man as opposed to this being something that he's searching for and looking for and propelling the, the early stages of that narrative. I think it would have been a far stronger film. I think, um, for me, one of the things that really captured... My imagination with Deathgasm um, reminded me a lot of one of my favourite TV shows of the last decade is called um, Metalocalypse. I don't know if you guys yeah. have ever seen this, but the thing that I love about Metalocalypse that Deathgasm does as well is that it both aesthetically and and narratively feels like it comes from the mind of a 15-year-old boy who's really into metal. And it gets away with a lot of stuff that it maybe otherwise wouldn't. Um, in terms of its gender politics, mm. it's kind of which, got a, a naive, cheeky yeah, charm. Yeah, and it's, that it's really you give it a lot of free passes. I don't really, you? I, you really do. <laughs> and it's there is a kind of deliberately, yeah, deliberately naive 
yep. kind of lost. You know, you this is this has come from the mind of somebody who's been locked in their room for too long. <laughs> and I, I, lo- I mean, I love the the woman in this. I love the, uh, there's um uh, the, the the female love interest. She sort of discovers metal and she has this fantasy. Oh, that's right. It's coming back now. where there's like lots of boobs <laughs> and kind of Viking women. Yeah. And I yeah. just love it because for me, it's it's like that's how that's how a 15 year old boy into metal would imagine his dream woman getting into metal. Like it's this sort of complex yet naive fantasy kind of pro- uh, kind of uh, what's the word projection yeah. yeah like I, I i don't know whether that's making excuses for it but it just there's something about the aesthetic of it that just locked completely into that mindset um where parents are the enemy and mm. and i mean I, it's I even just, a bit wayne's world isn't it yeah there's it's something that, about death gas yeah. i mean i i really can't I personally really can't fault Turbo Kid. I think that it, it does what it set out to do, but Deathgasm was just locked so specifically into the stuff that I was uh, that I'm into. Yeah, I'll say Deathgasm is the good one to watch with a bunch of friends while you're drinking. Turbo Kid's a good one to watch stoned. <laughs> um, vice versa. We should, we should end release. all of our reviews like yeah. that. Which is <laughs> uh, so I've heard. Well, so Deathgasm is available right now on Home Entertainment through Madman Entertainment, and Turbo Kid is getting released on Home Entertainment late next week through Transmission Films. So. You can catch up with both. Good Christmas viewing, I reckon. The Look of Silence is screening at Cinema Nova through Man Man Entertainment and Creed is on wide release through Roadshow Films. You've been listening to Plato's K with myself, Thomas Cordell, along with Alexandra Helen-Nicholas, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. <laughs> it's good night from us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.